listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. I'm Scott Riannis, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. There's one more seat here and one there. Uh, today, I'm <clears throat> happy to introduce David Abramson, who is an analyst at the State Department, where he's been since 2005. He also has a PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Indiana. Uh, other than working at the State Department, he has also been a visiting fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and at Brown University. Uh, he teaches courses at Georgetown and has also published a lot on uh, Islam, national identity, and foreign assistance in Central Asia, uh, on anthropologists working in security and intelligence communities. Uh, so, so David is kind of a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to Central Asia. Um, in D.C., you often see him at both government and non-governmental events. He's always there as an, as an expert, as a discussant, as a real person who can cross between these, these two mysterious worlds. Okay. So we're happy to have him here today in our world. Uh, and today he'll be talking about Central Asia's regional challenges, new and old. And we'll have the PowerPoints beamed up here any second. Um, would, a, would a printed copy help you get through the first 15 minutes? 15 minutes? Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully no minutes, but um, um, I can, do, I can. <laughs> do it from what's on here. That would be... Maybe you should have said jack of all trade routes. <laughs> yeah, can we just plug that laptop into the screen? Or, well, the, the laptop and the screen capability is something we're trying to bypass with this guy. Uh, the mouse is out of battery, so it's just one problem after another. Um, but here's the laptop. Okay. Technical soldiers do it all. I'll uh, peer at you over the laptop. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have to peer. Um, anyway, so, so oh. we'll, talk, we'll talk for about 45 minutes, and then um, we'll have some time for questions after. Okay. Um, so I guess I could turn this around, um, and you can peer at the screen. Um, but basically what I wanted to do today, because um, you know the title of the talk is Central Asia's Regional Challenges, New and Old. And... Um, I've tended to, when I've given talks in the past, focus on sort of more um, internal politics, uh, domestic issues of uh, labor migration uh, from Central Asia to Russia or Islam in the region. Um, this is um, much more of a um, sort of geopolitical talk, um, but I, what I'd like to do is uh, contextualize it. You all know the map, I presume. <laughs> of the region, um, contextualize it in the, um, looking at it from the point of view of, of US foreign policy, um, not without commenting on US foreign policy because um, the disclaimer I have to, as a employee of the State Department, is that these views are 
in the presentation are, those, are my own and not, do not necessarily reflect those of the State Department or the U.S. government. Um, and um, recently, two weeks, less than two weeks ago, uh, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry was in the region. What was unusual for that, it was the first time a U.S. Secretary of State visited all five of the countries um, in one trip. It was also the first time that this, uh, and then met with them all in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. Um, and also the first time that he, that the Secretary of State met um, the President of Turkmenistan, which is, as you familiar with Uzbe uh, Turkmenistan, it's, it's, it's one of the more uh, closed uh, countries in the world and to actually go there. Um, they've met in Washington or in New York, but not in Central Asia. So there were a number of firsts. Um, and you can think about what that means for um, what kind of message that's sending. Of course, there's been a lot of speculation in the Central Asian press. There's been a lot of speculation um, in the Russian press and in other press around the world. But what I'd like to focus on today are, are three questions, addressing three questions. One is the U.S. interest in Central Asia waxing or waning. Um, and I'll uh, talk about why that question is relevant today. Um, there are a couple, there are three chairs that are, haven't been taken. So. The second question is what new challenges are the, what new challenges are the Central Asian states facing? Um, and then the third question I'll address is what can we expect from the Central Asian states? And I use, um, this, once the PowerPoint is up, you'll see I'll often have CAS as an acronym for Central Asian states. Um, so the first question, is, is US interest in Central Asia waxing or waning? Uh, and I'm going to argue that um, despite what a lot of uh, analysts and people who work on Central Asia were saying uh, right up uh, into, until and through 2014, which was once the U.S. draws down, reduces its troop levels in Afghanistan and the uh, northern distribution network, the supply line from the Baltics through Russia, Kazakhstan, and other Central Asian countries to supply uh, operations in Afghanistan is not needed anymore, um, that, uh, that the U.S. is not going to be interested in these countries, even though the U.S. policy has been um, to emphasize not just security, but also uh, integration, uh, just regional integration, but integration of Central Asia into the rest of the world. Integration with South Asia, integration with East Asia, the Middle East, and elsewhere, and to provide trade routes. Uh, and and um, you know, other people have, have, have said that this is really an attempt to <coughs> sort of separate them from Russia's sphere of influence. Um, there are people who take positions on both sides. Um, I'm not sure that there is any one single position at the State Department that they've managed to keep hidden from everybody else. Um, so uh, there are lots of ways of looking at this, and I want to keep that more complicated view on the table throughout. 
Um, Now, the three external reasons for U.S. interests that might sustain U.S. interest in the region were not apparent prior to uh, September of 2013. So two years ago, uh, there were three rather uh, important developments that took place. Uh, one is a Russian... Sorry, just testing the okay. keys. You should be able to go back and forth with those. Okay. There. Excellent. One is Russia's new activist foreign policy uh, with its uh, uh, annexation of Crimea, um, military operations in parts of eastern Ukraine, uh, the push to... Uh, form the Eurasian Economic Union um, and pressure on Central Asian states to participate in that, as well as sort of more older uh, multilateral organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, and the Collective Security Treaty Organization. So that's that's one, and I'm going to go through these in a little more in more detail uh, shortly. China's growing economic influence. While that was apparent in 2013, what happened in 2013 was that President Xi visited, uh, announced the One Belt, One Road, also known as OBOR, uh, also known as uh, China's Silk Road, and there are other, uh, other names for it, uh, announced that in Astana, uh, capital of Kazakhstan, in September 2013, um, and tying together uh, existing, but also a lot of uh, prospective development, infrastructure development, trade programs, um, and visited all five of the Central Asian uh, countries subsequently. And then the third is the rise of ISIL in, uh, uh, presence of ISIL in Afghanistan, Islamic states, uh, in addition to the Taliban. That's not news. And anticipations of growing instability in Afghanistan, uh, a lot of people expected that. But ISIL adds a new dimension to that, and I'll explain how that's uh, talk about how that's different from uh, the Taliban as a force there. So these are um, oh, I'm in the wrong. Uh, <laughs> so these are the things that changed. Oh, and I, let me just go back just to emphasize here that annexation and the uh, activities in, it was uh, early 2014, and Islamic State announced its Islam in Khorasan um, in January 2015, even though they already had a, some, something of a presence in Afghanistan prior to that. Does Khorasan mean Afghanistan? So Khorasan is a historic name for uh, a region of, of parts of Afghanistan, parts of Central Asia, Turkmenistan mainly, and Northeastern, um, so if Iran, so basically this area. But the way Islamic State uses it, it's the idea of establishing 
their Islamic State throughout Central Asia, in Iran, and Afghanistan. Okay, so here's just President Xi shaking hands with President Nazarbayev in Astana, Kazakhstan in September of 2013. Crimea annexed by Russia in 2014, um, and then uh, the military uh, activity here in eastern Ukraine in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. Those whole, those, they didn't annex. The, the activity is mostly in parts of. It doesn't. It's not uh, throughout both provinces. I just want to point that out. Um, two <laughs> not very happy for, with each other leaders. <laughs> Um, and here's just a map. I'm sorry you can't see the details, but yeah. Um, these are. This is a map from uh, up to September 15th of this year, with incursions of uh, areas where the Taliban and Islamic State are operating. Which and, color is which, David? I'm sorry. Which color is which? At least we can see that much. So um, they refer to the dark one as our attack zones. Um, I, I'm not an expert on this, but um, it's to show where they're concentrated. Um, uh, it's militant incursions in general. Islamic State is not uh, in all of these areas. It's more Taliban. Um, but this, if you look at a map of Afghanistan a few years ago, the Taliban uh, presence was a lot, uh, was a lot smaller. Um, and what's new compared to uh, prior to 2001, uh, the Taliban uh, mil militant presence in northern Afghanistan is, uh, is is different, is new now. That did not happen before, and there was a northern alliance of Uzbek, Tajik, and, and allies supported by uh, Central Asian, variously by Central Asian states to the north, that was used to make created as a buffer zone. Um, and I'm going to get into how the presence of militants in northern Afghanistan is used by Russia or by the Central Asian governments um, for political reasons to raise uh, awareness of a threat that um, is actually questionable. So what are the Central Asian states' relationships with these powers and what is changing? Um, so Central Asia and Russia, let me start with that. Russia maintains military bases in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Um, Tajikistan has the largest uh, overseas Russian base. Um, of its, it's the largest of its bases uh, anywhere outside its borders. Um, and that's called the 201st Airborne, locate, has three locations throughout Tajikistan. Kyrgyzstan has it has Kant military base in Kazakhstan. Um, it's a it's 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 something less than a base in the western part of the country. But what I'd like to emphasize here is, even though Russia has maintained long-term presences in these countries, military presences, they're very contained. In the case of Tajikistan, they have been using uh, hiring Tajik. Uh, personnel soldiers for the most part until recently um, and the idea that these bases 
are securing these countries from external threats from the South um, is very questionable. During the Tajik Civil War, the Russian military base in the 1990s, the, the Russian military base existed, uh, was already there in Tajikistan and did not take sides, did not, I mean, they sold weapons to both sides. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's questionable what kind of security they are offering. But what I, I would argue is more important is that it's a projection of Russian military power and political influence that they do not want to see erode. Um, and even though Russian influence in Central Asia has been eroding for the last 25 years, for the most part, renegotiating base agreements that uh, up till 2040 is a way of saying, look, we're here to stay. But what they're actually doing uh, on these bases is pretty minimal. Is that tied to the CSTO or not? Um, those bases are Russian bases, but there are uh, collective security treaty organization uh, operations throughout Central Asia. Um, and But again, that is a Russia-led multilateral security organization. But when Kyrgyzstan, when uh, President Bakiev was overthrown five years ago, uh, and the new provisional government in Kyrgyzstan uh, could not deal with the subsequent instability in the country, they asked the CSTO to come in and help, and the CSTO declined. So how much, it, it, what it does, it, it raises the question of how much Russia is willing to put into uh, backing up, put, put uh, money where its mouth is in, in Central Asia, other than the optics, the appearances of maintaining uh, uh, influence. And, and, and not, more importantly, that it's not eroding. Um, another important connection are that um, some of the states, especially uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan, are very dependent on labor migration to Russia and remittances uh, sent home. Tajikistan is the most remittance-dependent country in the world. Now, that doesn't mean in terms of the numbers, but in terms of as a percentage of uh, GDP, it's close to 50% equivalent of their GDP. It doesn't count in the GDP. Uh, Kyrgyzstan <coughs> is the second most remittance-dependent country in the world. There are estimated one million Tajik labor migrants going to Russia every year, some of them staying for long term, some of them seasonal laborers. Kyrgyzstan is somewhere in the 600 to 800,000 range. And Uzbekistan, uh, which has really officially not acknowledged its labor migration to Russia has an estimated four to seven million labor migrants. And the reason why there's such a wide estimate is that um, the, uh, at least half of them are estimated to be um, uh, there illegally on, in un undocumented ways. So that's huge. Um, Uzbekistan has a much larger economy than the other two countries, so as a percentage of its uh, GDP, it's uh, it's much smaller. Um, I think it's estimated somewhere in the 20 to 25 percent, which is not insignificant. Um, but there are a lot of other issues connected to labor migration, including Russian use of that as leverage to pressure these countries to join Russia-led multilateral organizations, 
um, or put other pressure. They use uh, you know, introducing restrictions on who can travel there, under what passports. Um, and um, if you're interested in, 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 in that, we can talk more about that afterwards. Russia was also um, the Central Asian state's leading trade partner until around 2013. Um, and that's natural given their long-term relationship. Um, but now China is the leading trade partner with the region. And then finally, less clear, less obvious are the legacies of institutional and personal relations um, between security services, between, the, with, between militaries with Russia, um, and even in some cases as the Turkmen government and the Uzbek government have tried to control the institutional relationship uh, and not have many Russian FSB officers you know, operating in their countries at least or, or cooperating actively. There are a lot of personal ties because these people studied together um, 20, 25 plus years ago, um, and even less to some extent. Um, and then economic elite ties um, without the sort of Eurasian transnational system of, of businesses, um, oligarchs, and, um, and organized crime networks uh, that facilitate uh, a lot of the trade that, sent, that the previously more isolated Central Asia needed in order to uh, to, to export and do business abroad, um, they really need those. So um, all of that's kind of uh, part of the, the, the shadow uh, influence in, in the relationship. Now with China, um, it's been mostly financial to date, but increasingly security related. Um, so China now dominates trade with the region, not necessarily with each country. And I'll show you uh, some uh, graphs in a minute. Um, and foreign assistance uh, uh, with no apparent strings attached. To, uh, major amounts of assistance have been promised and I would say have been followed up on much more than a lot of the assistance that Russia has promised. Um, and China's building tunnels, roads, railways, pipelines, uh, not just between China and Central Asia, but with the idea under the One Belt, One Road vision of setting down these, these pipelines and, and in transportation networks across Eurasia to Europe, which then raises questions, how big a player is Central Asia going to be or a benef beneficiary of these uh, in, in comparison with uh, countries further to the west and north. So these figures are a little old, but it's interesting just to note the, how China has gone from zero pretty much in the early to mid-90s in terms of trade <coughs> volume up to in 2011, um, catching up and then surpassing Russia. But Russia has also continued to go up in terms of trade because of the long-term uh, um, relationships. Which one of those lines is the U.S.? U.S. is green, down here. Okay. I mean, U.S. is, is not, I mean, the, 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 the it, it's not a, an investment, investor-friendly region. And I'll, I'll show you more evidence of that um, uh, in a little bit. So 
another way of looking at the Central Asian trade. Black is China, the gray is Russia. Um, you'll see that exports from, um, from Turkmenistan to China are huge. Um, that's almost, it's, it's almost all gas through pipelines. It's about 70% of Turkmenistan's ex, uh, exports. Is that figure indicating billions? 80 billion, 70 billion? No, these are percentage of exports. Well, percentage. Yeah, per, sorry. Percentage of exports okay. and imports. <coughs> so um, you'll see that in some cases with Uzbekistan, it's a, it's a lot more balanced. Um, Kyrgyzstan imports a lot of Chinese goods. In fact, a lot of Chinese goods come in um, to Kyrgyzstan, cross the, the border, and then Kyrgyzstan re-exports them to Kazakhstan and uh, Uzbekistan. Despite closed borders, for the most part, with Uzbekistan, uh, when, when there's a very powerful people overseeing that trade, they, the goods get through. And now Central Asian states' relationships with ISIL and the Taliban. And it's very important to distinguish between these two um, because they're not in sync and they're not aligned in any way. Um, Central Asian state citizens have been joining ISIL and other militant groups in Syria and Iraq, but not Afghanistan. Syria, uh, for people analyzing Central Asian social media sites, Syria is has captured uh, a lot of people's imagination of the fight against um, uh, President Assad, uh, who is seen as um, as, as a, a oppressor of Muslims. Um, and I should say that Sunni the Sunni Shia differences have never been pronounced in Central Asia, at least not for a long time. But this conflict in Syria and Iraq is bringing that out much more than as a lot of people assume Iranian influence might do. Do you mean that the difference in Central Asia between Islamic State and Taliban is a Sunni? Uh, no, not that difference. Um, just uh, most of Central Asia is Sunni uh, Muslim. If the exception of Pamir uh, in Badakhshan in the northeastern part of Tajikistan, it's Ismaili Shia, but that's a very small percentage of the population. The rest is Sunni. But people have been concerned that with, if Iran has growing influence in the region, that more that people who are benefiting from that might gravitate more towards Shia Islam. But if you ask people what the difference is, they don't know. It's not. It's never. It hasn't been important. In Azerbaijan, it's as Katie knows. It's it's a lot more important. But even young people. Uh, until recently, could not articulate the difference. But you know, when, when asked, they might say, "Oh, ask my father," and they say, "No, no, no, ask my grandfather." <laughs> so, but but that's I think that that's gradually changing, and I think it'll change in Central Asia. But um, uh, anecdotally, a lot of the uh, fighters from who are originally from Central Asia, who are in Iraq and Syria. Um, are coming, are being recruited in Russia among these labor migrants. And it's a very small percentage, I want to emphasize, of the labor migrants there. Um, but that's where it's happening because there is no room to do much recruiting. Uh, there's not, it's not, you're not able to for repressive in political reasons in Central Asia. 
those networks just cannot operate there. Um, Um, this, uh, Central Asia's uh, are concerned less um, with um, are, are more uh, con uh, are concerned about a spillover across borders, especially to Turkmenistan and Tajikistan, which have borders on um, uh, with Afghanistan. Uzbekistan has a short border, but it is highly militarized, and the Uzbek uh, border. Uh, services and their security apparatus is able to uh, secure those borders. Uh, but they are, the Uzbeks do worry that people, militants could come through the other countries. Um, I'm going to argue that um, that threat is pretty minimal. Um, and then growing reports of Central Asian and Russian willingness to work with the Taliban against ISIL. So before the idea was to work with the Northern Alliance ethnic Uzbeks and Tajiks, mostly in northern Afghanistan as a buffer zone. Now they're talking about working more with the Taliban because they don't see the Taliban as having uh, a, uh, an agenda of invading and making incursions into the Central Asian neighbors to the north. If they take more control in Afghanistan, they're going to be focused on consolidating power within Afghanistan, they're not going to want to antagonize their neighbors. Now, that's assuming that there's one Taliban that we're speaking of. And um, not being an Afghan expert, um, we don't know how that's going to play out. Um, whereas ISIL, which has um, the presence in different parts of Afghanistan, everybody's worried about that because it's just an unknown entity. And um, But their ability to make long-term and uh, significant inroads in Afghanistan is also questionable uh, because uh, no one has been able to do that uh, for, for the long term. What does Russia want? Um, so now I'm going to go back and talk about uh, the interests of each of these. And I've uh, covered some of this already. Maintain stability in Central Asia. Instability would bring conflict or Islamist militancy closer to Russia. I think, ironically, the fact that uh, Central Asian labor migrants in Russia, even at a small uh, scale, are are, are becoming um, are recruited there, is 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 going to bring it closer to them than anything that might happen in Central Asia. Um, Again, the optics of not losing influence in its near abroad is very important. And, um, and then increasing trade and monopolizing military sales and maintenance of uh, military parts um, based on long, uh, 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 long military relationship with the Soviet, the Soviet Union and uh, its Russian successor. But the challenge is Russia does not have a lot of resources to pour into this region with all the other um, uh, needs that they have. Um, so they, they try to do this on the cheap. There are a lot of commitments that they make, $1.2 billion in aid promised to some of the poor uh, countries in Central Asia, but everyone is doubtful that that's going to come about. Um, some of it will. 
demonstrating relevance and asserting influence in the region without causing instability are sometimes contradictory goals. So um, if the government of Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan is flirting with the United, with the United States uh, to balance Russia, um, Russia has put pressure on those governments to try to push the U.S. out. Um, now, sometimes that pressure can lead to instability, as we saw in 2010 with the overthrow of the government in Kyrgyzstan. Um, I think I don't think Russia intended to have him the uh, the Bakia family overthrown, but they certainly contributed in very uh, important ways that, that let, caused that to happen. Um, so they can go too far. And the question is, when, when do they see that, it's, that their actions and the pressure they're putting on these countries is going too far? And when, when would they pull back to avoid that? And then Central Asian states are increasingly suspicious of Russian objectives, especially after what they've done in Ukraine. Um, despite the fact that uh, Russia's uh, um, uh, recent air, air bombings in Syria have, um, uh, have been very popular among the Central Asian populace. Um, and I think there's this idea that, that the United States is behind, was behind ISIL, fabricated ISIL is very widespread. Um, there and you can you can blame it on Russian media, which is, saturates the region. Um, but there are you can, uh, there I think there are other arguments. A, a desire to see a strong Russia because a strong Russia is the only place where millions of migrants can go. Uh, they're looking for that stability. They blame the downturn in the Russian economy on Western sanctions, and that threatens on an individual le level. Uh, a, a lot of people in Central Asia. David, can I ask a quick question? Yes. What about Turkey? Um, there are labor migrants that go to Turkey from Central Asia. There's linguistic ties. Um, is that a factor at all? Like, what what's the number? What are the numbers like for the labor migrations there? Like, could it be a stable location instead of Russia? Um, well, Turkey's interesting because of the linguistic ties, as you point out, but they're not. Um, it's not a, it hasn't been a major destination. It doesn't match the numbers that you see in Russia or even going to Kazakhstan. And it seems more, from what I understand, female labor migrants as domestic workers in Turkey rather than male uh, construction labor migrants. Right, right, right. The networks, I mean, a lot of labor migration is based on networks between one community and uh, another community or destination in the uh, country that they're going to. So. Um, those uh, are still very strong, um, and they don't exist with Turkey. Um, but what's interesting is Turkey has uh, does not require visas from the Central Asian governments. Now, some of them, the Central Asian governments require exit visas for their own people <coughs> and are alarmed when Turkey uh, removed the visa requirement because then they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to control their citizens going to Turkey and who knows crossing the border into Syria or just um, it, so that that kind of relationship is fraud and especially with Uzbekistan 
they've had a very tense relationship with Turkey for the last 15 plus years. Okay, what does China want? Um, so I'm going to just mention quickly four of China's goals, security in Xinjiang and bordering countries. In the 1990s, China was very concerned that uh, Uyghur separatists in Xinjiang would be able to operate out of the, uh, across the borders in Central Asia and that the governments would play games, political games, with China uh, by supporting these groups. I think they're less worried about that now because they're <coughs> flooding Central Asia um, and buying <coughs> off the elites and leadership there with all of the economic assistance. Um, but the Chinese policy has been basically an extension of their go west policy, just taking it beyond their borders. Transportation infrastructure, as I mentioned before, to facilitate exports to Europe. Um, accommodation of China's economic needs to expand beyond their domestic markets and reinvest capital elsewhere. This is true happening all over the world. Um, the only thing that makes, well, what makes Central Asia unique compared to Southeast Asia and South Asia, Africa, Latin America, is that it borders on Xinjiang and it is a, um, it is a, a bridge between China and European markets, uh, land markets, as opposed to the, the, the one road part of the Obor, which is um, uh, the sea. I mean, road, I think, land, but anyway. Um, and then China's challenges. So labor policies are very pro-Chinese and do not favor local populations. You just skipped over the energy section. Oh, um, thank you. Um, access to energy resources for domestic consumption. As you saw on the chart before, there are multiple pipelines bringing gas uh, and oil from Central Asia. In fact, the Turkmen used to export all of their gas and it's very gas, a very gas-rich country, through Russia to Europe. Almost, that's almost down to zero now, and mo all of that gas is going to China. And China built these pipelines very, very rapidly uh, in the last few years, um, which the, the idea of doing any kind of trade, economic development so quickly in Central Asia uh, is, is pretty amazing. So it's a, there's a four... Um, four-line pipeline, the fourth one is um, is being built now, going through all of the uh, Central Asian countries. So China's strategy, if in, in the event that, that they're having problems or there are internal problems in one of the countries, they're going to get that gas and oil one way or the other. Um, now the challenges, I mentioned the labor policies. Again, labor migration, this is a huge you know, region that exports huge amounts of labor, and yet China's uh, projects in Central Asia tend to uh, be done by Chinese workers. So in the long term, this can create all kinds of resentment locally, um, but they don't seem to be taking that into account at this point. Um, I think the idea is that as long as the elites are happy with these deals, um, and I think they're very happy with them, um, uh, that they're not going to raise these labor issues. Again, I mentioned the extension of the Xinjiang policy of development, of development equals stability, but if you look at what's happening in Xinjiang, uh, development 
rapid development is not creating stability. In fact, the situation has gotten worse. Um, and so what happens when you extend that to this neighboring region outside of China's borders without the security apparatus to suppress um, it's, it's what follows, you, so it makes, forces us to ask the question, what follows the economic development? And I think that explains some of the uh, growing concerns that China has with protecting its uh, business economic projects uh, all over the world, but uh, especially um, in Central Asia, um, and finding ways to make sure that the governments there are stable enough to protect them. But if they're not, uh, what role might China have in, uh, in, in uh, cementing that? Uh, Central Asian states have the world's longest customs weights for imports. I'll show you uh, some dramatic examples of that in a minute. Um, and then limited international development risk management experience. Uh, very little on the ground social science research or long-term assessments of development projects and the and, and, and impact on local populations. That just is not happening. And uh, with a recent um, uh, dam, Chinese uh, dam project in Burma that created a lot of uh, backlash and unrest, um, uh, we have to ask what is China learn? What lessons is China learning from that that they might apply elsewhere? And that's that's a big question mark. But I think they're talking about risk management without. Quite having the um, the, the know-how to pursue it. Um, so if any of you are, you know, learning, you know, no Mandarin, and could you could there's I think there's a big future in um, in, in in advising China on international development. There's going to be a need because if this is this is going to be going on for a long time. Okay, so the problem with Central Asia's informal trade barriers. <coughs> so we don't have Turkmenistan here because it's hard to get figures, especially from those. But the red is the amount of time to import in days. Um, so it's, it's improved slightly from between 2006 and 2014 for each of the two countries. But 104 days, 75 days to import. Uh, in other, uh, slightly, somewhat less for exports. I mean, this is the worst region in the world for the amount of time to trade. And here you can look regionally. And I, I, these two slides, um, I, I credit, I thank uh, Alex Cooley at Columbia, Barnard University um, uh, College uh, to, uh, for putting this together based on, um, uh, on figures he assembled. Central Asia, amount of time between 20, 2006 and 2014. This is the rest of the world. So um, there's a lot of work to be done, and this is an, this is one of the challenges that I mentioned that China will is facing and is, has been uh, complaining about. Okay, now uh, what do Afghanistan-based Islamist militant groups want? And I'm going to talk about the Taliban, I'm going to talk about the uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, I'm going to talk about um, uh, ISIL. So in terms of Taliban goals, I mean, all of these are evolving because the situation is evolving very rapidly and alliances keep changing. 
But I think generally we can say that they want to win and consolidate power within the country, within the borders of Afghanistan, gain legitimacy and avoid antagonizing neighbors because that would undermine uh, the first two. So those points point to um, not flowing across the border and extending uh, uh, their, uh, some kind of Islamist agenda in Central Asia. Now the challenges here are that uh, the leadership, you know, there's a leadership crisis in, uh, among the Taliban and, and there may be multiple Talibans. We don't know how united they're going to be. There's a, they, they're losing supporters to ISIL's momentum for now. Um, and then in Central Asia, should they be interested in going there, there's societal sentiments throughout the region that are not sympathetic to militant Islam. Now, in terms of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, uh, which began in Uzbekistan back in the 90s, was driven out uh, by the end of the Tajik Civil War, and then driven farther farther into Afghanistan, and then into the um, fought, uh, the board, uh, area on the border with Pakistan. And they haven't been able to get back to their original original purpose of overthrowing the Uzbek government and other governments in Central Asia and establishing Islamic states there. And they've had to basically sell their services uh, as mercenaries to other interests, other powers in, in the region. Um, so again, I said this is evolving. It's unclear what, um, what they're uh, able to do in the long run. But some of the challenges, oh, and then the, um, you know, this uh, gaining a foothold in Central Asia has been abandoned, at least for, for now. In terms of the challenges, they've been torn between the Taliban, who had been there uh, hosting them in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, and the Islamic State, as they saw that Central Asians who had not been with the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan in the past were... Um, we're going to Syria, regardless of what the IMU agenda was. They, the IMU had to play catch up and try to align itself with the Islamic State in order to be able to claim uh, greater legitimacy among Central Asian uh, fighters. And so, but it's been uh, back and forth, and the Taliban have been, you know, cutting off ties with the IMU. And so they've had a lot of problems with who their host uh, is in, in Afghanistan. And as I said before, they're perennially diverted by other groups' agendas. And then in Central Asia, there's the triple barrier to gaining a foothold. And I say it's there's sort of three layers. Um, the, 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 the national governments and uh, uh, security apparatus is zero tolerance for these groups within the five Central Asian government uh, countries, the national local elites, even in places like Tajikistan where the government does not command authority over all of the regions, full authority, uh, the local elites would rather deal with making deals, temporary deals with the capital and the government uh, than uh, with the devil they know than the devil that they don't know in Afghanistan, the militants there. Because if they 
provided refuge or safe haven for uh, non-Central Asian groups in Central Asia, they might lose whatever business deals they have and bring uh, attacks on them. Um, and then this societally, there just is not strong support uh, for uh, militant forms of Islam across all five countries. Okay, what do, uh, now ISIL Khorasan. Again, gaining a foothold and momentum globally, including in Afghanistan and making inroads in Central Asia is just a distant objective. But the challenges are establishing itself as an as a integral uh, to Afghan militant Islamist, uh, as, as an Afghan militant Islamist movement and not as an outsider. And I think that's going to be a challenge to them uh, for a while, um, if, 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 as long as they exist, but we'll see. Um, and then you have to ask the question, when have Islamist militants succeeded where there isn't already protracted instability caused by something else? If you look at Afghanistan, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, with the exception of the Iranian revolution, which is more complicated, um, all of these places had wars going on that were not related to Islamist militancy, but they opened up space for them to come in. And so I'm going, I've, I've argued for a long time that this is not, Islamist militancy is not going to be the, uh, the, the causal factor of instability anywhere in Central Asia. It'll be for internal region, re reasons. Um, and we'll talk about what some of those might be, such as succession struggles. Um, now, Central Asia and the United States. There's limited trust in the U.S. because there's concern about the U.S. history of fostering color revolutions in, in Eurasia or in the Middle East um, or um, unrest such as uh, most recently in Ukraine. Um, and recent polling in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan show U.S. favorability has declined during the last four years. Less so in Tajikistan, but definitely a decline. Um, and then Russia is seen as more willing to assist Central Asia during a crisis, but they're also anxious about Russian intentions based on its uh, recent um, uh, more aggressive foreign policy. But what's interesting is that Uzbekistan uh, unlike Kyrgyzstan, now is pursuing um, a charm offensive with the U.S. Um, now, after Andijan, the violence that occurred there in 2000, 10 years ago, 2005, uh, where relations with Uzbekistan and the U.S. really sank um, to the, the, the worst they'd ever been, um, they started to come back in 2009, and, and Uzbekistan agreed to assist the U.S. Um, with uh, the Northern Distribution Network. But just in the last two to three years, they've really opened up uh, dialogue with U.S. on the government level, with lots of different government-to-government uh, -government agencies. In the past, it would just be really controlled, narrow uh, cooperation. This, isn't, this doesn't translate to human rights. So uh, this doesn't translate to loosening up controls um, that the Uzbek government views as necessary to, to maintain uh, stability and prevent any kind of unrest uh, in 
Uzbekistan. But it's still happening, and the reason I'm arguing is that it's to balance Russia mainly, but also China. And Uzbekistan has had a fairly um, uh, standoffish relationship with, with Russia um, in, in terms of multilateral cooperation and, and a lot of uh, outside of the realm of economics. Um, so, what can we expect from the Central Asian uh, states? Um, so, the governments, as I mentioned before, have exaggerated a lot of the threats that might come from Afghanistan. Um, and Russia, Russian press, Russian officials have really played up the, 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 the swarming of militants just south of the border in Afghanistan um, to, to say, look, you need us there to help protect you. They want to broaden their footprint in places like Tajikistan um, and, and, and their influence there. Um, now, the Central Asian governments have been ex have exaggerated a lot of these threats to us because, and, and globally, because they want to attract assistance, especially security assistance, if not investment. There isn't a lot of investment in the region because of the high levels of corruption and the trade barriers and all of that that I talked about. But to attract um, certain kinds of assistance um, and keep great powers engaged. So if the US really pulls out of the region and doesn't isn't interested, who are they going to have to play off, play Russia off against or China? Many of the real challenges facing the regime are internal. So as I mentioned, leadership succession in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, the two largest um, are imminent. Um, President Karimov of Uzbekistan is 77 years old. And he's been in power in Uzbekistan since 1989. In Kazakhstan, President Nazarbayev is 75. Um, and he's been there since before 1989. I mean, even before independence uh, in, in a leadership role. Um, so they've never had a leadership succession in these two largest states. So a lot of people there are worried about what might happen. What if there's a... Uh, protracted succession struggle. Um, it could be disastrous. And I, I would say that that's one of the biggest uh, questions uh, concerning uh, stability in the region. Um, leaders extended families, um, business overreach and growing expectations in the economies, in these economies of limited growth, especially in Tajikistan, but we've also seen evidence of this in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, I think in all of them, growing families, with high expectations about what they can take from the pie, uh, which is not growing very fast. And nobody can <coughs> question these family members and what they're trying to do. So that creates a lot of potential instability. Economic pressure to the regime's loss of controls over revenue. So, uh, you know, a lot of commodity prices have dropped in the last couple of years. Cotton, uh, oil, especially, um, uh, you know, drops in um, uh, the economic collapse in Russia due to the currency crisis and sanctions, etc. Um, I don't think economic pressures alone are going to lead to um, to instability because these countries have faced a lot of. 
you know, austerity, uh, dire situations, cuts in, 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 in energy and in heating and water, hot water, and they're just used to that. So I think they can keep tightening their belts and they're going to be expected to. But that may be in, in, in conjunction with uh, a, a succession uh, dilemma could create uh, internal problems. Um, and so um, I think their you know, consolidation of, of regime power is just going to continue and they're going to um, continue efforts to control in external influences, circle the wagons whenever Russia or the US or something going on in Afghanistan or in the Middle East, um, if they see that as, um, as, as, as having some kind of influence over uh, popular sentiments or, uh, or, or economic pressure. So let me wrap up here um, by saying, um, re-emphasizing that the U.S. is going to continue to be interested in Central Asia for the three main reasons um, that I mentioned before. Uh, now, we could have an isolationist Congress, or we don't know what the next presidential <coughs> administration is going to be, but um, assuming that foreign policy doesn't shift that uh, as radically as, as some domestic policies, uh, I think we can expect that interest to be maintained. Um, um, and I've also emphasized the key challenges to not only the Central Asian states, but the interests of regional players outside of that region and to the U.S. role in the region. So the challenges are, you know, for different actors, not just uh, anyone. Um, and I'm hoping that these will just challenge us to think about the longer-term future of the region and uh, giving us more context for thinking about that. And again, so-called game changers, succession struggle or a Russian economic collapse that cannot support the labor migration or even the trade uh, between Central Asia and Russia are the two um, uh, factors that could really make a difference. Um, so let me stop there and happy to take your questions. Questions are about the uh, nuclear weapons free zones in Central Asia and Mongolia. Um, uh, so I'd like you to uh, assess how much the Central Asians are invested in those zones, and I, including the Mongolians, and I, I see them as essentially almost uh, contiguous uh, as a uh, a factor of stability. Do the Russians see it the same way? Uh, do the Chinese see it the same way? Um, and uh, uh, in my view, uh, do, do, are these zones also, as, as I understand them, uh, uh, zones in which uh, 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 nuclear power is promoted as a, for one, in the context of the NPT, and, and perhaps you could comment on the Kazakh-Japanese uh, uh, agreement recently. Yeah, this is not an area that I know much about. I know that uh, Kazakhstan has really uh, taken pride in um, its um, uh, getting rid of its nuclear weapons and has used that politically for 20 
plus years. Um, and I know in, ter there's, you know, in terms of removing um, uh, hazardous materials out of the countries, they're cooperating with Russia to do that. Um, but beyond that, I don't know anything about Mongolia, um, and it's not an issue that, unfortunately, um, uh, I, I, I really know enough to comment on. Kate? Um, so you said game changers, uh, succession crises, and Russian economic instability. I'm curious about China economic instability. So ch the Chinese economy has taken a hit in recent years. Has there been a slowdown in the investment in Central Asia as a result? Or maybe that we won't see that because those kind of projects are so, you know, planned out ahead of time? Or um, I, I expect that in the long, medium and long term that, that it's not going to have that much of an effect, even if it has initially. Um, I mean, unless, I mean, China still, I mean, China is not putting a lot of investment into Central Asia in the first place. So it's got these global interests and money has been going everywhere. So I think um, it depends on what they decide to prioritize if they have to cut back. But I would imagine that what they're doing in Central Asia um, for security reasons, if not economic ones, they will continue to to pursue um, because of Xinjiang. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's a bordering area. Um, and in getting the, the, the oil and gas easily into China. Um, and I think being able to trade across Eurasia uh, is uh, to Europe. Um, so it hasn't shrunk so much that, um, I mean, it depends what happens, how much it shrinks. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but one point related to that I'd like to make is the, the question of how, how important Central Asia would be in the long run if China continues to develop across Eurasia uh, the way it has articulated in its vision. Um, the Central Asian markets are not very, are not large compared to Russia and, and Europe. So is this just a way station that they want to secure? Um, but the but the, the transportation routes are going to go, railroads are going to go mostly across Kazakhstan and Russia, and ultimately they can ignore the interests, uh, economic interests. So developing Central Asia, I don't see. You know, they're not using local labor. If they do. These are not projects that Central Asians are being trained, you know, to in order for there to be sustainable development there. Um, they're not being trained, so it's not going to solve the employment problems where, with so many migrants leaving the country. Um, so I think there are a lot of questions to how Central Asia might benefit from the One Belt One Road vision, um, where it be where it to be taken to. about water policy, um, both uh, Tajikistan in particular and Kyrgyzstan have had these old dams that they wanted to make larger. The Russians have promised, as you said, forever to make them bigger. Um, Uzbekistan has said they'll start a war if they make them bigger. Uh, Chinese said, okay, we'll now make them bigger. The U.S.
U.S. has all these plans. Yeah, you should make it bigger and we'll send electricity to Afghanistan. Um, yeah. It seems to me anybody who touches that is going to run into a lot of trouble mm -hmm. uh, because of the sensitivities of the downstream food. Right. And right. so what's our policy? And literally, I lost track of it. Are they building these? Are the Chinese really going to build these dams? So, um, yeah, thanks for raising that. Um, the Ragoon Dam project in Tajikistan, um, if built, would be the highest or, or tallest and or tall and tallest <laughs> dam in the world, um, which would allow which would allow um, Tajikistan not only to provide electricity for itself but also to export it to its neighbors in Central Asia as well as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. The problem is, will Tajikistan, I mean, the technology I understand, and maybe you're, you know more about this, that if the technology is there to be able to do that in the seismic zone that exists, if it were based on 1930s or 40s technology, it wouldn't have been possible. But that's assuming that they build it according to the code and regulations and aren't skipping on, skimping on the supplies which is really hard to believe. However, um, and, and so China does not want to antagonize, um, and, and I think a lot of external powers, either they're using the threat of supporting these dams politically, as Russia is, is, is wont to do, or they're saying, well, what about smaller dam projects that we could do instead of this, this vanity project of Rahmon's? And it's not just a vanity project, I think, it is basically Rahman's, what, what is for Rahman what Sochi was for Putin. It, it attracts, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a magnet <coughs> to attract flows of investment from international finance institutions and other countries, which he can then, you know, uh, repackage and help to, to uh, lubricate the patronage system in the country. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps the money flowing in and one, one bucket of money will attract another, and that's the idea. Um, but um, what's interesting on China's part, not wanting to antagonize Uzbekistan especially, but what China is doing is building lots of uh, high-capacity cement factories in Tajikistan. And this would prevent Uzbekistan from cutting off supplies. Uzbekistan has just limited degrees and has threatened to cut off, if, if Tajikistan continues to build this dam, they're going to block the roads and railroads and all routes from Central Asia and points north go through Uzbekistan into Tajikistan. Um, so you have to bring in cement through Afghanistan and that's, given the instability there, that's difficult. But if they're producing their own cement, it's, it's, I think it's a, a, a sort of workaround that China can indirectly, in a way, support the building of the dam without actually saying that they are. Hmm. Um, and a, a Chinese uh, a businessman in the region uh, also articulated that. But it's uh, whether that's the intention of it, um, it's, it's not entirely clear. But it's, it's going to be an effect. And water, um, so Uzbekistan is the most water inefficient user in the world. Now there's plenty of water, and I'm not a water expert, 
but I, um, talking to water experts, uh, they said that there's plenty of water in Central Asia, um, despite what the effects of how it's used, the drying up of the RLC, um, and, the, and the extreme wastage in, 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 uh, in Uzbekistan uh, uh, for the cotton production. So if they all made it more efficient, then, um, then it wouldn't be a problem, uh, except Uzbekistan politically is concerned that if Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan build more hydropower and are, are, are um, uh, energy independent and exporting it, that they can use the water as leverage on Uzbekistan and not be vulnerable to Uzbek pressure mm. for other unrelated issues. Plus, the Uzbeks are probably also concerned that if Russia is investing in large dam projects, that they will use that put pressure on the Tajiks to, to press Uzbekistan to join in these multilateral uh, economic and political organizations that they are trying to do. Scott. So I don't presume that, that you have any special insight into what our policymakers may be thinking. No. So the disclaimer. <laughs> but uh, John Kerry's recent trip there was striking because uh, it was the first time any American Secretary of State had been there since the Clinton administration, I think. And first time someone's gone to all five in four days. So what was that really about? What do you, <laughs> what do you think that was? Do you want me to turn off the recording? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think that was about? Well, you go first. <laughs> You're from Washington. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Um, Honestly, um, honestly, I don't know, um, because uh, you know it, it makes sense that it could be a show of. I mean, I know what they say, and I can. I don't know if how many of you have read what what they've said about it, but one is that one of the key points is to. Uh, show support for uh, um, the, the sovereign in integrity of these countries, given Russia's actions in Ukraine, um, the concern that Russia might um, engage in similar actions, possibly in you know where there's a large Russian minority in Kaz northern Kazakhstan. Um, uh, what's going on in Moldova and Transnistria, Nagorno-Karabakh, using frozen conflicts to, um, at low cost to Russia to keep the pressure on. So it's a show of force that the, you know, a state a, a communicating a message that the U.S. Uh, is not, you know, abandoning this region. Um, and um, so yeah, the, that sovereign integrity is, is, is one thing, and it's a, obviously that's a message to Russia. Um, with respect to China, I don't think that the U.S. I mean, the U.S. Nobody thinks that the U.S. can compete with China economically in Central Asia. Um, so um, it's, I mean, I would imagine that it's just part of this geopolitical balancing act, and to to maintain 
some ties there. Um, now they say that, I mean, you can see the list of eight or nine programs that were rolled out and announced, some of which already exist. They're not um, necessarily new ones, and some of them are just support for World Bank projects, activities in the region. Um, but, I mean, I, th I think it is a statement to, to say that the U.S. is not going away. Now, you can be cynical about that and say, uh, you know, they, this is just sort of a last, you know, pat on the back before we go out the door. Um, but I, I don't think that anybody in Washington has made a decision to do that. Um, so um, I don't think there's one reason for this. And there have been um, uh, a number of um, visits to all five countries by other heads of state, um, uh, Japanese uh, prime minister, uh, Abe, um, uh, um, President Xi, um, Modi, Prime Minister of India. Um, there seems to be a new trend of, of visiting them all. We have a travel agency here, Mir, that, uh, that, that operates tours exactly like that. In right, order. right. So, so, five so days. maybe they're following that. Yes. Any, any uh, hints that uh, Obama is, is following suit? Because uh, Kerry is not a head of state, and if the U.S. really wants to show that I don't think these care, things are planned that far in advance. Right. Um, although I know that um, you know the Kazakhs are especially aggressive in trying to get as many high-level meetings with everybody. I mean, they're very active in, in balancing, you know, keeping good ties with Russia, keeping good ties with U.S., China, um, and. You know, have hinted. Well, next year in 2016 is the 25th anniversary of the breakup of the Soviet Union and the independence of, more importantly, of the independence of all these countries. So, wouldn't it be nice to have a visit from, you know, everybody? They do. They do. Yeah. And you haven't mentioned education and what's happening there. They they are, on the one hand, they're doing the English thing where they're going to teach everybody English grade by grade, which can't, I can't help but think is going to get into trouble. You're talking about Uzbekistan. About Uzbekistan in the, in the third grade. Um, yeah, I don't know about the, the other countries. But on the other hand, there are just no exchanges, no no outside people. And the, 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 the distance between them and other countries is increasing. There's been some effort to deal with corruption. Corruption in academia is particularly problematic for development. Yeah, it's huge. People get worthless degrees. Um, and that means that people aren't really learning anything. They're just buying their way through. Right. Uh, so what what is happening in, in that area, and what do you think that bodes for Uzbekistan in particular? Well, for Uzbekistan particularly, um, they, they uh, ended, terminated their programs for Uzbek students to go study abroad government-sponsored ones. The Kazakhs have continued to do that. Um, the others, uh, Turkmen, don't do that, and the Kyrgyz and Tajiks don't have the money to do that. Um, so what happens is people with money, um, I mean, everybody understands that learning English um, one way or another, whether the Americans are there to teach it to them, um, is important for um, engaging with the world. Um, and 
Russian uh, use of Russian, fluency in Russian has been eroded, eroding just constantly since the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so even though you have all these migrants going to Russia, they're in their on these enclaves uh, talking mostly in their own languages and can get by on the street, but it's not the, the, the educated level of fluency that they once had. And we had some Delta groups that have come through the State Department, maybe of lawyers and judges or others. If they're over 40, they were absolutely fluent and accentless in Russian. If they're under 40, even if they could speak fluently, there was they're accented and some grammatical. So that's, that's, I don't see that changing at all. Eurasian Economic Union or not, or labor, I mean, labor migration could increase, but that's not going to change it either, even though they're introducing language laws. And Russia has tried through you know, soft power projection and, and others to try to make inroads and you know, get Russian back. But it's, they, they, again, they're not putting money behind it. Um, and, and the U.S. is going... They're using the Latin alphabet, right? They're not going back to Cyrillic. Uh, nobody's going back to Cyrillic. Um, Uzbekistan has had a kind of schizophrenic approach to <laughs> you know, Cyrillic and Latin for 20 years. And I don't, yeah. Right. But I don't think that's indicative of the you know, popular use of the language. But what about corruption? So, um, I mean, it, that's... Um, that's massive, and so only the people, I mean, there are people who have to pay less to go abroad to study in Turkey or Europe or elsewhere than they have, than, they, to, than the bribe that they have to pay to get into uh, a law university in Ashgabat uh, and then keep paying to pass all the grades and, and, and graduate. <laughs> and then what kind of an education are they getting? So what it does is only those who can afford to go abroad um, and there are more doing that than ever before, but it's still a drop in the bucket. Um, uh, they either stay abroad, or some of them come back, but they can't. In, you know, they can't apply, especially if they're studying practical, you know, economics or business or law. They can't apply that locally. There's just no room for that. Now, people who are behind these programs and these efforts to Let's just keep them going, and maybe they'll pay off in the end. Maybe another generation down the road, when there are new people in power, maybe that will change. But um, there's no evidence that, that the system is or, or, or changing at all that way. They don't realize it's problems. Um, well, they, I mean, it's, it's, they may realize it's. I think a lot of people realize it's problematic and would like a change, but it's there are too many uh, immediate uh, uh, needs to to keep that system going the way it is. I mean, breaking it is really difficult. I mean, I've, I've asked people who work on India or other countries, how do you break corruption, massive you know corruption like this? And these countries are some of the most corrupt in the world by Transparency International Standards or others. I mean, they don't measure education, but it's everywhere. Um, and, well, you need a rise of the middle class. So what, you know, maybe that would do it. But that's not happening in anywhere but Kazakhstan to some extent. Um, but I, that alone might not might not be enough. And so Kazakhstan has government-funded English-speaking universities bringing in, you know, people 
people from outside. So they're, they're going to rapidly uh, get people who have real knowledge or a real university education. Right, but then what happens if you go back, if, if they've studied outside the country and they come back, uh, they're either going to be so frustrated with the system that they turn around and leave again, or they just you know, work within the system. Um, I'm puzzled, I'm still not clear about what the U.S. objectives, we didn't have a slide up there, it said, as the U.S. Well, that was like, intentional. What our objectives are there, and in particular, um, since we'll never have any economic role uh, to, to, to speak of, and we can't have a military um, why, in fact, don't we just turn it over to Putin and say, look, okay, you have a much more natural and, you know, and historical and ability to help stabilize that region and keep the Taliban or ISIS or whatever out. And then we could hand Central Asia to Putin as kind of a gift. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, not all. We just say, we're not pretending <coughs> here. You have your hands full of China. And, uh, and so we're just here to send researchers over. Okay, and that's so, it. Okay, so, so why not? So the message that would send, and uh, that's recognizing that Russia has the ability and the will to... Uh, re, you know, increase its influence in that region, and I'm not sure that it does, um, and that it can. Um, plus, as you know, I was talking about China's growing influence. Um, you could say, well, let's turn it over to Russia and China to fight over, right? Yeah. I mean, if 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 you don't believe that Ru that Central Asia is going to be reintegrated into a, uh, a, a new post-Soviet uh, world sphere of influence, and I don't think that's realistic to believe that, um, because um, as I said, they don't—they're not putting the resources behind it. It's more the appearances and the optics. That's—that's um, that's one. That's one issue. The other one is that I don't think the U.S. wants to uh, contribute to a, uh, a, a vision of the world a world order that is about dividing uh, into spheres of influence. Now, you may think that the U.S. government actively participates in that. Has our own, yeah. But, I mean, it's a little more complicated. Um, uh, both, I mean, both China and the United States have, for some, in Central Asia, have visions of, of, of globalizing the region in different, very different ways. Russia's view is regionalizing and creating regional integration. So it's very different. And you know, some people might say that the Russian and Chinese versions are somehow compatible and they can divide it into Russia does security, China does economic development and influence. But in the long run, that's, that's going to clash. So the US, you, could, you could say, one could say that the US uh, objective here is to say, you know, this region doesn't belong to anybody um, and uh, just happens to be on certain doorsteps and not others, 
and they should have the opportunity to integrate in globally in a whole range of ways and continue the 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 period of the post the post Soviet period in terms of transnet developing transnational ties I mean they already the elites in these countries already have that I mean whether you look at it in the dark side with with money laundering and all the the capital that flows out into offshore and you know banks and investments in Dubai and you know Beverly Hills and President Karimov's younger daughter bought this $58 million house in, in, in Beverly Hills um, that she's never been to. She's not going now. <laughs> no. Um, so there's a lot of that's, – that's a form of, of globalization too rather than just looking at it in terms of international – you know, conventional ways of looking at international development. Um, so I think it's not realistic to say, Russia, you can have it back. Um, uh, partly because of China and partly because of Russia, and then also what message you want to send to the world about um, about dividing up the world into spheres of influence. Uh, and again, you can question that, but that is an el that is a side of U.S. foreign policy, uh, even if you think that there are contradictory sides to it as well. So for one more question, you had your I hand think up. it's yours. Well, thank you. All right. The question is about uh, Iran uh, joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, uh, you could pursue it along the Islamist uh, line. Um, I'd also like you to, uh, even though you sort of disclaimed interest on this, uh, see if there's any relationship to the uh, P5 plus 1 plus 1 agreement on the uh, Iranian nuclear uh, program because uh, that's China and that's Russia and that's the United States uh, lifting sanctions on a state that's a major oil and gas uh, producer and also a, a, a nuclear proliferator or at least one way or the other vertical or, or horizontal mm -hmm. so um, uh, and again but the focus on that is uh, will uh, Iran join the SCO and if so why and, and what are the implications yeah so um, until until the uh, nobody wanted them in uh, until uh, before the sanctions were lifted, um, and the 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 procedures for uh, adding new members have not really been worked out. You have observer countries. You have a third category. I can't remember what it's called. In the SCF. Isn't Iran an observer? It is. Yes. Iran, uh, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, and Mongolia are all observers. Um, and then you've got this third category that includes Turkey and Syria is asked to be part of that too. But um, you know, the, there's been a, there's been some momentum for adding India and Pakistan, but you can't add one without the other, and they, nobody wants to do that. Um, and the Iran, I, I don't know. Um, it's been too recent since the sanctions were lifted. Well, they really haven't been. Or, or since the, there was, since there was momentum towards that. Um, and but they were all looking at Iran closely. None of the Central Asians are, uh, are want, 
much Iranian influence in Central Asia. Um, they're, they're very wary of Iran. These are very Soviet, in secularist in a Soviet, very specific definition of secularist regimes, secular regimes, and they're very suspicious of Iran. And it, I don't think it is it, less to do with Iran, uh, Sunni Shia divides in Islam and theological doctrinal issues than just the way Iran has has um, used religion and ideo religious ideology as a, as a weapon or instrument in its foreign policy. They're happy to get Iranian investment in building, in engineering, definitely of a higher level of, of, of engineering capabilities, um, but it's not so much higher that what they end up building in Central Asia is that very high quality, um, but it's still investment. Um, so, but they want, on the, uh, they want the sanctions lifted and they were not willing to work with Iran too closely as long as there are sanctions uh, there because they don't want to antagonize other uh, interests in the world. Um, Uzbeks export cotton through Iran, um, so they were concerned about losing that uh, route before. Um, so it's mixed. I mean, Iran introduces, you know, starts producing and selling oil. Uh, it's going to compete with other uh, oil producers, Russia, and it can bring the, the price of oil down, and that's going to hurt Russia and all of Central Asia as well. So there's a, there, that's complicated. And I, I, again, I can't talk about the, the nuclear aspect of it, but I, I, I haven't really seen much uh, on the part of the Central Asian governments commenting on uh, Iran's nuclear capabilities and, uh, and activities. They just haven't really uh, talked about that very much. So. And on that note, we reached 4 o'clock, so uh, please join me in uh, thanking David Averson for a lot.